Let's have a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. God, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to the needs around us in the Northeast, uh, Lord, in Haiti, in our community. And Lord, there are plenty of opportunities. The question is, will we? And sometimes that means making sacrifices for things that we want to do or things that we want to get. God, I pray that we would see that as a, a worthy opportunity, as a drop in the bucket when we think about what's really important in life. So God, as this week comes, as we go out this week, as we work, as we vote, as we share, as we live, I pray, God, that we would stop each day and ask the question, God, are you being honored and glorified with what I have and with who I am? And I pray, God, that we will be able to answer that and say, Lord, I, I will do what I can. My life is yours. Take me. Everything that I have is yours. Use it, Father, for your glory. And may the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Uh, the real gospel versus tradition. And as we look at uh, tradition this morning, Jesus is going to talk about that. I wanted you to kind of have an, an insight and an understanding of tradition. And there's a, there's a great movie. And if you're uh, over the age of 35, I almost guarantee you've seen this. Uh, some of you that are young are going to look at that and you go, what in the world is that? But those of you who are 35, as soon as this, this starts, you will go, oh, yeah. And this is a great picture, a great snapshot of, of Jewish tradition. Gives us a great picture of it. And so we'll turn your attention for just a moment to the screen. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! 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 Traditions. We've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatolia, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, 
how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Well, that's a great picture of Jewish tradition, of rabbinic Judaism. And, you know, a lot of times when people preach on tradition, it they kind of bash tradition, tradition bad. That's really not the case. Uh, there are really a lot of positive things about tradition. And, you know, God uses tradition uh, in Scripture. We see in the Old Testament there are traditions. There are traditions of the feast. Uh, there are the traditions of, of jubilee in which uh, every 50 years the property uh, would go back to its rightful owner. Uh, there's tradition in how Passover was observed. So tradition is not uh, necessarily a negative thing. It can be a useful and legitimate tool to helping us grow spiritually. Uh, Jesus, we'll see here in just a moment, is not against tradition. The problem is, is when tradition becomes equal to Scripture or even supersedes. We'll see in this case, it even supersedes uh, the Scripture. And that is Jesus' dilemma here. That is what he is really, uh, really, he really goes after. And today, we, we still observe traditions today. I know I, I have friends who, who fast one day a week. That's a great tradition, and they devote time to prayer. Uh, a lot of times uh, we, ha we celebrate different traditions of uh, holidays, uh, such as Thanksgiving. That's a great tradition. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, you know what? Christmas is a tradition. It's a tradition. It's not spelled out in Scripture. It doesn't say that we're to come at Jesus' birth and, and have this time. But we practice Advent, uh, Lent. That's a tradition, and it's very useful. There, there are useful times in which we can concentrate and reflect upon the goodness and the glory of God and who Christ is and what He has done for us. So, in a sense, I want to define tradition this morning as things that are done in routine as spiritual acts of worship. So, uh, they can be very beneficial and very positive. Now, the reason traditions were started, and we're going to look here in the, the passage of Scripture in just a moment, and we'll see a term called the tradition of the elders. Now, there's a group called the Pharisees. We'll notice them right off. We've talked about this before. Uh, but they were kind of the religious purists of that day. And um, they established much of what we understand as tradition as they interpret the law. And the reason they did that, uh, particularly the, the, the main reason, was about 200 B.C., before Christ, uh, when the temple was destroyed, or actually even further back than that, uh, during the post-exilic period, as the uh, Scriptures uh, were not there and readily available as they were being take, taken off uh, into foreign lands and particularly into Babylon. Uh, many of the religious leaders got together and they said, you know what, we need to come up with some understanding and some traditions that help people live the law out. Because if not, they'll forget our culture. And so it was started for a very good reason. And then actually in 200 B.C., they started actually writing some of these down. Up, up to that point, it was simply oral. 
Uh, and it was believed that when Moses gave, the Jews believed that when Moses gave uh, the Ten Commandments and when he gave the law, that also he gave a set of oral traditions uh, that were to be given and to be ascribed to. And so that's what was being practiced and being lived out. And so uh, about 200 B.C., uh, there was a writing called the Mishnah that they began to record these, and it was completed about 200 A.D. And there were other writings as well, but this was the primary document, and it was inserted in something called the Talmud. And they would use this to live their life. Just as you saw the example, uh, they had traditions on how to eat, how to sleep, how to prepare your food, how to wash your hands. Uh, there were traditions for everything. I've met with a local rabbi here, and uh, he, he goes through there. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of traditions that they observe. And again, in and themselves, these traditions are not bad. Remember why they were started? They were started because the children, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, uh, were being taken away as captive. And so they wanted to build some buffers around the law so that they would understand them, so they wouldn't get too close, quote, to sinning. Now, we still do that today. We do that with our children, don't we? We say, okay, we're going to put a buffer on you. We're going to try to build a fence around what you watch and what you read and what you listen to, and where you go, and who you're with, and we'll, we'll kind of build those fences around our children so that they won't get close to, quote, sin or anything that would be harmful. And hopefully we can do that ourselves. Uh, if you have a computer, hopefully you have uh, a software, a filter on there that filters out information that you don't need to be looking at or you don't need to be seeing. So buffers are not themselves. The problem becomes when we start to worship the buffer. When we start to make the fence uh, the gospel, because, because it's not. But it can be a useful tool. So Jesus is encountering a situation where they have begun to put not only the traditions on par with Scripture. And remember what the Scripture is at this time. During this day and age, the Scripture is not the New Testament we have, but it's the Old Testament. It's the Torah. It's the, the first five books of the Bible and then the prophets. And so that's what the Scripture actually was. And so they did have the law, but the problem is, is they've also taken some of these traditions and not only have they elevated them, but in, in we'll see a particular case where they have superseded the actual law that God has given them. So let's take our text here in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, beginning with the first verse. We mentioned the Pharisees earlier. They are the religious purists who are trying to get people to keep the law and understand what the law is. And then the scribes are the lawyers who help interpret it and, and describe what the letter of the law is. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. So what's happening? <clears throat> Jesus is there and his disciples have gone and they've gotten bread and they come back and they just start eating it. And they hadn't washed their hands. Now, we would think in our modern culture today would go, well, that's right. They ought to wash their hands. I mean, that's not that's not good hygiene. Wash your hands before you eat. They're probably dirty. But that's not what the purpose was at this time. You know, the real truth of it is they didn't even really understand hygiene in the sense that we do. They didn't understand germs and bacteria and all these things. Uh, they had no idea that they existed. And what's amazing, just as a sidebar here, what's amazing, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, which is a book that a lot of people look and go, what on the earth was going on there? Why did he have all these rituals? Why did they clean up? Well, you know, just think about it. They were about 5,000 years ahead of their time uh, because they had no idea how disease spread, how germs spread. And in that, in that 
in ancient culture, there would be certain times, we know this from history, uh, that certain cultures would just be completely eliminated because of disease because they were just passing around. And they were still uh, spreading those germs and had no idea. But God in His mercy had the Jewish people, had the Hebrew people. He gave these Levitical laws that kept them clean and purified. He even gave them a dietetic code before we had any idea of what cholesterol was. Okay? And so God had already given that to them, and that was a bonus. Now, the primary purpose that was established was so that the rest of the world would see that the Jewish people were a unique people who had a unique God, and they would be drawn to them because of the things that they did, that they were different. And so that was a large part. That was the primary purpose of the dietetic code and of the ritualistic law. But as we look here, Jesus, the Messiah, has now come. That was a foreshadowing of the one who would come, who would make them completely clean. They're still involved in the rituals, in washing of hands. And the reason they're doing this is because in, uh, in the Levitical law, the priests were commanded before they would partake of the bread to wash their hands. They would have just a little handful of water put in their hands. They would clasp their hands just like this. It'd just be a small amount of water, and then they would clean, clean their hands before they partake of the bread. This was the ritual. Well, the Pharisees thought as the time went on, you know what? Not just the priests. Let's all do it. Matter of fact, let's make that a tradition. Let's make that a tradition of the elders. Let's make that basically a law. And so they expected everyone to do it. But here are the disciples not doing it. And they go to Jesus and they go, you know, they're not washing their hands before they eat their bread. And Mark, uh, knowing that he's speaking primarily, uh, recording for Gentiles, he, uh, you'll see these little parentheses, you'll see these little parenthetical statements. They're basically commentary. And Mark is helping us understand this is what's happening. He's giving the story and then he's giving his comments to interpret it for a Gentile audience. And so we see Mark doing that, particularly here in chapter 7. He said, for the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. Now, we mentioned that term a while ago, the tradition of the elders. We talked about what that was. Those were the rules, the buffer zones that were placed around the law that were not scriptural, but simply had been added. And when they, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. The reason they don't do that is because when you go into the marketplace, you're certainly going to encounter some Gentiles or people that are not clean. And because of that, you've got to make yourself clean when you come back from the market. And then you'll see that they wash their cups and they wash their pans, they wash their couches. Uh, you know, you still have Orthodox and Hasidic Jews that do that today to make them clean. And so, uh, they do that, and the Bible says, and that's John's commentary, giving you that understand, and that there are many other customs that they receive and they keep, and they're doing this for ritual purposes. Verse 5, Then the Pharisees and the scribes said to him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? Why, why don't your disciples live according to to the tradition of the elders. Notice they didn't say, why don't they live according to Torah? The first five books of the Bible. Why don't they live in according to the law? They said, no. Why don't they live according to the tradition of elders? And Jesus is going to give them an answer. He's going to give them Scripture. And He answered them from the book of Isaiah in chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah prophesied correctly, you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. They honor me with their traditions. They honor me with what they are doing. 
in the functions that they're going through. They worship me in vain. Their heart is not in it. See, it's easy for us to just do a bunch of stuff. You know, I'll, I'll come over here, I'll sit down, I'll stand up, I'll sing a song, I'll kneel, I'll pray, I'll read. And we can kind of go through those responses, but our heart can be completely out of it. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're doing these rituals, but with not a heart, not for the heart uh, for God, not with a heart for others. They worship me in vain and they teach as doctrines the commands of men, the tradition of elders. They've made their own man-made commandments, and that's what they're teaching. Disregarding the command of God. Now, here's the big deal that Jesus even is more adamant about. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. So, instead of obeying God, God has given you some very clear principles, some very clear law. You're taking these traditions and you're exercising them over the law of God. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. And for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of his father and mother must be put to death. It's interesting how this gentleman said, you know, where does this tradition come from? I don't know, but we've always done it. You know, that's the death nail of churches today. You know, we can't do that this way we've always done it. Why do we do it? I don't know. It's just the way we've always done it. You know, and sometimes, again, traditions are good. But when they begin to rule us simply because they exist, then they've gone too far. Jesus points out an example here. He said, you know what? Let me give you a clear command of Scripture. One of the most important commands that I've given you is this. Honor your father and your mother. But you know what's occurring here? Jesus tells us. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban. Corban. I used to see that word. What does that mean? I noticed people started naming their children that. What does that mean? Well, basically in our vernacular, it means gift or it means offering. But in this context, what it means, uh, Corbin was one of, it was a position, tradition of the elders, what they came up with. It was something you could say, you know what? I'm going to take my land or my home or my wealth and I'm going to dedicate it to God. I'm going to dedicate it to the temple. And I will have rights over it. I will steward it until I'm gone. And then it goes to uh, the temple. It goes to, quote, God at that point. But I, I can use it. But because it's consecrated, I can't let anybody else use any of it. I can only use it as I, I see fit until I have to give it at what time I die or whatever time is designated. So, um, Mom and Dad, I, I know y'all are having a tough time right now, but I'm sorry. I've dedicated my my earnings. I've dedicated and, and made a commitment of my land and my property to the temple. So you're going to have to fend for yourself. Well, here, here's the big problem with that. In that day and age, they didn't have a social security system. They didn't have a retirement system. Well, they had a retirement system. You know what it was? You have a bunch of kids, and hopefully they'll take care of you. Hopefully some of them won't be losers, and they'll take care of you. That's what you're hoping, okay? So let's have about seven or eight, nine. Let's get the odds in our favor, and hopefully I won't have a bunch of losers here that don't take care of my parents, all right? And so that was the retirement plan in a patriarchal society. You take care of it, and, and the culture expected the children to take care of the family. Well, some of these... You know, some of these uh, men and particularly some of these Pharisees and, and others would say, you know what, I'm 21, 22, 23 years old. I'm working hard. and You know, I, my parents make it on their own. And so I'm just going to make this. I'm just going to dedicate it to the temple. And then I have control of it and it's mine until it goes there. And so they'd have to say, Mom, I'm sorry. I, I dedicated it to the Lord. 
I took, I took, you know, any money, any property I had, I, I've dedicated. It's, it's Corbin. Nothing I can do about it. If that's not enough, and they're doing this in the name of God, in the name of uh, tradition, so to speak, he says, whatever you benefit from me has been received in Corbin, so you should be happy. That is a gift committed to the temple. And we see Mark again giving his parenthetical statement here. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Jesus goes on to point this out. He said, not only have some of you done that, but when they come before you, when they come before the religious authorities, and they, they maybe some of them it, apparently it seems to uh, indicate or infer that some of them probably begin to say, well, my parents are in their 80s now, and they're starving. You know what, I, I want to change this. I want to go back and revoke that. And they would go back to the religious leader. They goes, no, no, you can't. You can't do that. I'm sorry. You made a vow. And that's, that, that now has been consecrated to God. You can't take it back. And Jesus is going, that's just, that's just wrong. And he said, even when they can get convicted, even when people want to make a change, you say, no, you revoke God's word by your tradition. And you do many other similar things. This isn't the only thing you do, but this is one of the most horrendous things you do. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into the person from the outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. And when he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Now, that is a huge statement. As Gentiles, we just go, whatever. I mean, we don't even get it. We don't even see it. It just kind of blows right over the top of our head. But this is mammoth. I mean, this is Mount Rushmore, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount everything right here. Okay, this is huge. And at this point, what Jesus, in fact, is saying, he says, the ritual law, the dietetic law. You know, there are three laws. There's the moral law. There's the dietetic law and there's the civic law. Well, this dietetic law. You know what? I am the fulfillment of the law. The Messiah has come and you no longer have to do that. That's no longer a part of the system. Now, whatever you eat, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make you unclean. As a matter of fact, he said all food is clean. He gives the, the little comment here. He gives the insight. He gives, Mark gives the commentary and he says this. As a result, he made all foods clean. Just so us, we as Gentiles would understand. He just made all the foods clean. I'm sure the Pharisees were... I mean, they were just completely wigged out at this time. What do you mean? And the disciples get Jesus off. They go, what are you saying? What are you trying to communicate here? You know, we, we've always tried to, I mean, we haven't been perfect, but we try to live by that dietetic law. I mean, that's what we've always done. That's always been what we've done. That's even written. Moses even said that. I am the fulfillment of the law. You're no longer going to be saved by law. It's not that law is leading you to salvation. The salvation is here before you. So you won't be unclean by what you eat. It'll be by what you do. It's the condition of your heart. You see, what you eat doesn't affect your heart. It's what you think. It's what you receive. It's what you read. It's what you embrace. That's what makes your heart unclean. Not what you eat. Not the food you put into your body. And then he said, 
what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. It's not what you eat. It's what's in your heart that makes you unclean. Now, what can we learn from this? What is the role of tradition for us today? I mentioned earlier there are some positive things about tradition. Well, number one, traditions can demonstrate value to us. We can, they can help us. They can help us with our values, the values of holiness and purity. I want to give you an example right now of a good tradition that, that I think is very valuable. It's the wedding ring. My wife gave me this ring when we got married, and it's a picture of my covenant commitment to her. And she has a ring, and it's a picture of her covenant commitment to me. And that is a demonstration. We want other people to know that we are married and we are committed to one another. And so it is a beautiful tradition that we observe and that we should continue to observe. And I believe it helps us to establish and demonstrate our values. Tradition can also foster reflection. When we come into the season of Christmas, we stop and we think about Jesus and His birth and how God in the, came to earth in the flesh and dwelt among us and lived. It's a time to reflect upon the greatness and the goodness of our Savior. When we come to Easter and when we practice Lent, we reflect upon what Jesus went through and how He lived and how He died and how He was nailed to a cross and how He was killed and then buried and on the third day rose again. Those are beautiful times. Lent is a beautiful tradition. Easter is a beautiful tradition for us to remember and to celebrate the resurrection of our God and King. And tradition can foster spiritual growth. When we have uh, traditions such as quiet time, maybe you have a tradition in your family for yourself. You know what? This is the time that I kneel and pray and that I read Scripture and that I go before God. That's a great tradition. If you don't have a tradition like that, you start a, maybe you start, a, start some traditions. A tradition that we have is my family gathers around and prays for me before I leave each Sunday morning. It's a, it's a great tradition. You know, a, a tradition I encourage you to start is maybe... Saying, you know what, my drive to work is my time where I'm just going to pray and I'm going to pray for others during that time. That'd be a great tradition to start. So tradition can have great benefit and help us in our spiritual growth. And, um, you know, communion is a great tradition that we observe. And not you, you may say, well, that's not a tradition. That's a, a command, a mandate. It, it, it is something God asks us to do, but how we do it is a tradition. Uh, some Sundays we pass a tray. Some Sundays we invite you to come. One of the reasons we do that, because we don't, that kind of goes into my next point here, we don't want you to just become complacent, com- become complacent in just going through uh, the acts and not thinking about it. You see, uh, there's some dangers in Scripture. That's one of them, when it fuels complacency, but also when it equals Scripture. When you start to let your traditions equal Scripture. Maybe your tradition is, I read my devotional every day. But you find yourself, I don't even read the Scripture anymore. I just read my devotional. And it replaces the Word of God. That's not a good thing. That's exactly what they were doing. They were taking, they thought, thought something that was good, that was intended to good, and they replaced the Word of God. And we could do it in a simple way with that. When it takes the place of our faith. How does it take the place of our faith? Well, when you start to think, well, you know what? I come to church. I sing songs. I serve. I do these things. And that is my faith. That's not your faith. That's a product of your faith. Your faith is your belief in Jesus Christ. It's God who was God in the flesh, came, lived, and died. 
and was crucified and has the power to forgive you of your sins. That's what our faith is. Our faith is in him who has saved us. So what is the role of the gospel? The role of the gospel is that it reveals who we are. Let me let me just share this with you. Not a popular message sometimes. Sometimes we leave this part of the gospel. Gospel, in my opinion, can be summed up in two thoughts. The first thought is this. You're a sinner. And you're worse than you ever thought you were. You don't really have anything that's that redeemable about you. Even your best thought and your best actions are tainted with selfish motives, even when you don't notice them. We are all sinners and we're all worse than we think. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Okay. That's, you have to start right there. But here's the good news. Because of Jesus Christ and because of His death, burial, and resurrection, because of His sacrificial atonement, once we receive that, transfer our trust to Him, we are more forgiven, more accepted, more cleansed, more perfected, if you even want to use that word, than we ever could have thought. Imagine when God looks at us because of Jesus, we are holy. We're His children. It doesn't matter what my past is. It doesn't matter what has happened in the past or what will happen in the future. I'm completely accepted. Just like your child. You maybe have a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew. And is there anything that they could do to make you not love them? Well, you know, if they made bad grades. Would you quit loving them? If they got in trouble, you love them. Would you quit loving them? No. You can't change that. You would never change your love for them regardless of what occurs. But what can happen is you can be honored and glorified when they're respectful, when they do what you ask. And that's the picture of God Almighty. We're loved just like you loved your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephew. And they're complete. You're completely accepted. That's the good news of the gospel. We are transformed by grace, not by keeping the law, not by keeping tradition, not by what we do, but by what he has done. See, you can sum it up in two words. Two words. Here's the difference between Christianity and religion. One word for Christianity, or excuse me, one word for religion is this, do. That's how you can sum up every religion, do. Christianity, done. Jesus paid the price. It's already been done. Have you received that grace and forgiveness? Let me close with this story for you. Uh, there's a girl, matter of fact, she'll be in our service next hour. And, uh, there's some women in our church that have reached out to her. Her sister is uh, a long-time member of our church, and um, she is uh, in prison. She's in a halfway house right now, uh, but she's able to come here on Sunday mornings. But about, uh, well, going back in her early life, when she was raised as a child, she grew up going to church. Uh, but she said, you know, it was, and this is, this is Randy. This is the girl I'm talking about. And uh, she said, I grew up going to church. But um, she goes, you know, I just kind of went through all the motions. I would say my prayers. I would read my scripture. I'd answer my questions. Uh, I would come to church. I would sing the songs. And I would do it every Sunday and every Wednesday. And I just did that. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm just trying to make myself good enough for God. And then I got to about age 15 or 16. And I know it's not all the other kids were doing that. And I got interested in boys. And so uh, I started to, I still tried to do these things, but then I tried to do some fun over here and live my life over here. So I was, I was trying to do both. And that was my life, trying to live in both arenas. And then I came to the place where uh, when I got out of high school, I had a boyfriend and and uh, he he was bad news. Matter of fact, he did drugs and he sold drugs. And soon I was doing drugs and soon I was selling drugs. So we were both selling drugs and doing drugs. But even in that, I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm a good person and I believe in God. 
And uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be an honest drug dealer, and I'm not going to rip people off. And in my mind, this was still, I'm still a good person. I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to do what's right, and and then I'm going to take some of my earnings and I'm going to give it away. I'm going to help people. So I felt like I was a very ethical, good drug dealer. I was still a good person, and even though I was selling them meth, and I, I felt like I was a, a great person. And I just kind of counted on that, and that's kind of my religion just kind of evolved. I kind of came up with my own religion. I believe in God, believe in Jesus, and I believe that if you're nice and you do th- and you treat people well and you give and you're honest, then you're okay. That's it. And so I went from over here from doing all the rules, and I made up my own set of rules. And then one day it happened. I got caught. I was about to get on a plane, and I was loaded with drugs. They pulled me off. They caught me. And my boyfriend had been dealing for a long time. They knew that. And, and because of the large quantity that was on me, because they knew how intricately I was evolved and uh, how high the, the ladder I had, had come, this was my first offense. They still gave me prison. I remember when they were getting ready for that time, I was in jail, and I just cried out to God. I said, God, just save me from this. Get me out of this. Uh, Lord, I'll be better. And she goes, and I, I don't think I really would if I just wanted God to get me out of this mess. But the sentence came down, and they sentenced me to seven years in federal prison. And so I went to prison. And when I got there, I was still living my life. I was still trying to work the angles. And there were a few people there, a few prisoners there who had really gotten radically saved. They were different. They started talking to me. I started talking to them. And I realized, you know what? I'd never been like them. I'd never known Christ like they were talking about. I'd never learned or read scripture like they read scripture. And it really started to kind of pull on my heart. I thought, yeah, this is what I need to do. But there were still some sins that even in prison I was involved with. I remember one night I was getting ready to, to partake in one of those sins. And, and I was just kneeling and praying. I said, God, if you're real, stop me. God, just give me a sign. Help me, Lord, because you know what I'm about to do. And I know I probably shouldn't, but I, I want to. And I'm just tired of being here. And I said, God, show me. And she said, you know, it was just like while I was praying that prayer, a prisoner came in and the the, the other people I was about to be involved with, with what we were going to do, they uh, they got caught. They got caught before I ever even got out of the, the bunk. And, and it's just like God spoke to me and I recognized. And some other people gathered around me and they began to pray over me and lay hands on me. And, and I realized that God was speaking. And I said, God, I, right now, I, obviously I've not known you. I've known religion. I've known trying to be good. But it, it doesn't work. Lord, I, I'm giving you my life. I give you control. I transfer my trust to you. And Lord, even if my life didn't go well, even if I have to spend the rest of my life here, you're my Savior. You're my Lord. I give you control. Because that was the day that I truly encountered Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so that was about three, three and a half years ago. And now she's gotten to a halfway house and uh, she'll be getting out at the end of March. And she's come to, she said, you know, share that story. Let people know that I was caught up in being religious. And living out what I thought was right. I, I came up with these own traditions that I thought made me right. But it wasn't until I recognized I'm a sinner. I can't save myself and I'm never going to be good enough. God save me. And I give you control. Like Job, though you slay me, God, I'll trust you. Have you come to that place in your life? Not about the actions. Not about the traditions. Not about the law. Not about what you think God ought to do and how you think life ought to work, but what His Word says, that you are a sinner, worse than you ever could hope to imagine, no way to save yourself. But He is a gracious and loving God 
who is just waiting for you to say, yes, come to me. Give me your life. Give me control. Receive my grace and salvation. Have you done that? I want to invite you to do that today. If you're, maybe you're a Christian here today and you found yourself just getting into the law, just getting into the rituals and missing the relationship. I want to challenge you to renew your commitment to Christ today.